Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast, where we talk with experts to help you build your worldview. I'm your host, May Lily Lee. These podcasts originate from video interviews you can find on our website, praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering at the website and subscribe or follow this podcast for updates on our latest releases. Today, we feature the first of a three-part interview with British philosopher, writer, composer, and teacher, Sir Roger Scruton. Sir Roger spent his lifetime pursuing beauty and truth and championing intellectual argument in Europe, behind the Iron Curtain, and in the U.S. In this episode, Doug Monroe talks with him about his pursuit of philosophy and several dual issues, including elitism and anti-elitism, and the distinction between a culture of repudiation and a culture of affirmation. Here's where the discussion begins. All right. Good? Okay. We are going to start uh, with this first question that is about, um, you know, which book would you recommend to a college-age person who smells a rat in the university mm. and I, I've gotten asked that question a number of times and so I thought I would ask you mm. to to get uh, sort of a feel for uh, your your philosophy. Yes. If a young person asked me which of my books would help him towards what I think to be the truth from the confusion and mendacity of a modern university, I would say start with gentle regrets which is my little autobiography which in which i show how difficult it is to be someone like me uh, and they would sympathize with the difficulty because then they would realize that what they're looking for is not something that's not going to be very easy to find then i'd say read uh, the west and the rest perhaps as a little statement of where i think western civilization is and ought to be very good. Okay, my next question is one that I, I just mentioned. And uh, if, if you don't have a short answer for what is philosophy, I, I, I'll skip mm. it and go on. Mm. But to, have, to not ask you that question yeah, yeah. in well, this I'm, opportunity. I'm happy. It's all right. Don't worry. Okay, what is philosophy? Can, uh, yeah. What is philosophy? Obviously, the word means the love of wisdom. But then you'll ask, what is wisdom? Wisdom is not the same as knowledge. It's not the same as expertise. Uh, it's not the same as virtue or skill. It's something entirely sui generis. It means the ability to comprehend a situation in its totality, see how the parts relate, and how I, myself, and you too relate to those parts. That means unraveling something as it is in itself and showing its meaning. And um, that's what philosophers philosophers have always tried to do. Great. Um, I admire your ability to talk uh, directly with philosophers you totally disagree with, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether you have uh, avoiding anger, etc. Uh, is there an approach you have to that? In your... Yeah. In, in discussing things with fellow philosophers, I have the great advantage of being educated in the analytic tradition. Uh, which is all about argument and not about conclusions or premises, uh, you know, although those are important. Uh, so um, 
you know, we, we assume the posture of the inquiring mind uh, and the fact that we disagree about the premises might only be revealed at the end of the argument. But meanwhile, the argument is interesting in itself. And by cultivating argument, you learn how to discover the truth. Okay. Um, we, we are the Praxis Circle, and I won't explain the name to you, but we do, our tagline is building worldviews. We want to help mm. individuals think about their worldview and build it. So these two um, words, foundationalism and constructionism, are important, and they get criticized a lot mm. today. So I was wanted your comments on foundationalism and constructionalism. Yeah. Yes, I think this is a, a, there's a division in the whole realm of philosophy between those who think that you need foundations if you are to arrive at any conclusion at all, and those who think, no, uh, we construct our conclusions uh, and um, we don't necessarily have to have any foundations. We can do carry out this work of construction in the void, so to speak. Um, I think both of them have elements of truth. In some areas, like aesthetics, for instance, the philosophy of art, what matters is a reasoned consensus, and that you construct through dialogue and criticism and experience over a long period and through uh, trying out things. Uh, and the idea that there might be foundations is a little bit misleading. In the case of science, however, there are foundations. The, the scientific method rests on those foundations, the method of induction and so on. That's where you begin. Perfect. Okay, last question in the first section. You're accused of being both elitist and anti-elitist. Which mm. or both is it and why? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um I believe that there are elites in the sense of people who know things that other people don't know, and the knowledge is useful, you know, and there are a good elite might be necessary in areas of expertise which we can't all acquire. We all believe that there are, for instance, well informed and impartial lawyers. And we hope that our judges belong to that class. And we would hope that they form an elite which the rest of the legal profession strives to emulate. But there are also other things called elites which are formed by what you might call negative selection. Uh, the Nazi party and the Communist Party were elites in that, um, in that sense. They were formed by, by picking out those who were brutal enough, uh, narrow-minded enough, uh, and subservient enough to serve the cause. And that, you know, often people refer to the old Soviet system as an elite system, because it did, um, it was entirely, sorry, it entirely comprised those sort of people. And in that sense, I'm anti-elitist, of course, because I don't want to, to be governed by people whom I despise and, and, and whom I fear. In our society today, we do have a liberal elite, which is closer to that Soviet model than it is to my model of the impartial judiciary, I think. But still, it's not a, a, a huge threat to us. 
So um, one can be anti-elitist about uh, um, the vociferous New York review of books reading class while being elitist about your, your local church. Beautiful. This question is more the history of philosophy, uh, and I'm, I'm just going to read it. In what sense did Descartes begin modern philosophy, and what sense Kant? Uh, there is confusion in the public. Yeah. Um, sorry. No, the, the history of modern philosophy is, a, of course, an incredibly complicated thing. Uh, it, it is normal from the from the teaching point of view, to start with Descartes, because he belonged for a start to the scientific revolution uh, and was very aware of the impact that science had made on theological thinking and, and other forms of speculation. He also was unique in that he was in search of certainty and found that certainty, he thought, in the famous cogito ergo sum, that the knowledge that I have of my own condition and my own state of mind. Um, so, yeah, we could say that modern philosophy began with Descartes. But uh, his search for certainty was also uh, very flawed, and, and nobody has ever been convinced by his arguments. And there was a, another revolution came with Kant, who recognized that, that there's something wrong with that search that you can't, you're never going to find that first premise from which everything else flows, um, that, that in the end you have, you have to make various assumptions about your position regarding the world, in particular that your faculties are sufficient to comprehend the world and therefore the world must be shaped in order to be comprehended. And that's a completely different method. Because uh, you're starting, as he can put it, from a Copernican perspective. You're no longer seeing the self as the centre of things, but um, in other words, as the uh, uh, the the Earth as the centre of things. But you're seeing it as revolving around something else. An enlightenment, postmodern, modern. Maybe I should pick one of those words. But to what extent are the the words modern, enlightenment, postmodern, possibly conceits? Mm. There, there is a tendency in all intellectual thought to divide uh, the thought and... Sorry, let me start again. There's a tendency in all thought to divide thinking and culture into periods. You know, there's the ancient, there's the modern, um, uh, there's perhaps the postmodern, there's the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Reformation. You know, all these divisions make sense up to a point, but they can't possibly be absolute. Things, these are porous boundaries, things flow through them. Uh, and it's, uh, they, people could spend their whole life trying to define those words, and it wouldn't be of any benefit to anyone. But what I would say is that the, there is such a thing as the modern world. We, we sort of do all agree about that, namely the world created by the scientific revolution of the 17th century and all that's flown from that. Um, there, is an, there is such a thing as the Enlightenment, partly because Kant defined it, the time when people, when man becomes conscious that he is the, the one who has to take full charge 
of his destiny, that, that one can no longer pass the burden of existence and freedom to, to a, an independent entity, not even to God. We're in it, you know, not alone, but we're, we're in it as a, a community, but as man. Then as for postmodern, that's really an invention of people who have not yet proved their ability to think coherently. So I don't really think one need worry about it. Well, that's a perfect lead into uh, the next question. Um, does objective truth exist? How does this term relate to a similar word, reality? Mm. Um, uh, I am a realist, so I believe that there is such a thing as truth. I also think that truth is, in its nature, objective. It's not for me to determine what the truth is. The truth is what it is, regardless of what I think. Um, I may not be able to know it, but to, to speak of truth at all is to assume this independent uh, validity uh, of statements, propositions, thoughts, and so on. And what makes something true, what makes a thought true, is the reality. So objective truth and reality are the same idea. And um, I don't think there's anything more that needs to be said. The, the only question is, to what extent are we human beings capable of knowing that truth? Okay, great. I'm going to skip the next question because I mm. think you answered it in your, in your answer. You right, okay. Okay. Uh, this one is important to, again, the Praxis Circle because we're trying to build worldviews. Mm. Um, and you see this written about a lot by theologians, particularly Reformed theologians. Is there a common ground upon which to judge worldviews or philosophy? Mm. Yeah. Um, there are differing worldviews. We, we know that. Um, just as there are differing religions, differing faiths. And on the whole, uh, a successful religion also has a worldview attached to it. You know, and there is the Christian worldview, the, the, the Muslim worldview, the Hindu worldview, and so on. Um, uh, and uh, there is a difficulty in answering the question whether these can be uh, brought into relation with each other, whether they can share common ground and so on, because each of them defines the common ground in terms of its own concepts and principles. Uh, and you, we seem to, we want or to hope for a point of view outside all the systems, above the systems, from which to judge which system is the right one. Um, and that uh, aspiration towards the God's eye perspective is actually part of what distinguishes our civilization, uh, the Enlightenment in particular, from all others that have ever existed. So to just wrap up this, this discussion of truth, um, is a desire to seek the truth or seek the truth for its own sake part of a particular worldview in itself? Mm. Well, we, in our tradition, let me just start again. Going back to Aristotle, we have the idea that truth is to be pursued for its own sake that all men desire to know, as he put it, and that this is a, a root principle uh, of rational life. 
Uh, and, um, you know, it, that, was became, that was part of the Greek worldview as well, generally, uh, and crept into Christianity through the Gospel of St. John. You know, in, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, uh, and um, he, he, of course, goes on to elaborate that uh, and tell us that the, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But Christ himself said that too, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, so that in, in the Christian worldview, there, there is a sense that, um, that there is an impartial truth at the heart of things, and that um, it's our duty to obtain it if we can. Okay, this, this next one is about the uh, institution of monogamous marriage. Is it important to Western civilization, and what is its relation to the state? Mm. <laughs> well, it, monogamous marriage is uh, something that, let me start again, fundamental to our civilization, to date at least, has been monogamous marriage. It, this is a comes to us from way before Christianity. It doesn't come from the uh, Hebrews. It doesn't come from the from the Jewish faith because the Old Testament, at least, allows quite a quite a lot of wives for for any particular husband. Um, it, but um, we see it there in in Greek literature from the beginning. Homer, the, you know, the Odyssey, Odysseus has one wife, Penelope, who is true to him, and the story is about the truth of his wife to him and, uh, and the glory of this, and it's integral part of, of his heroism and all that was available to him. Okay, he played around with other women too, but uh, I think that idea of the monogamous marriage for life is a, a sublime idea. We can't say that, you know, we only have to read the Odyssey to see how, how sublime it is. And we have tried to live up to it. Um, we now, of course, find that, that all kinds of alternatives are being proposed. Uh, and what makes it easy to propose them is that the state has taken charge of marriage. Marriage was never before um, a matter for the state. It was at certain periods a matter for the church. It always involved the gods being invoked to bless this rite of passage from one condition into another and so on. Um, but at the French Revolution, the state, uh, which then stepped forward with a, a kind of explosion of, uh, of arrogance, took over all the institutions uh, and and assumed the right to create marriages. Many religious people would say that you can't assume that you can't gain that right just by assuming it, that the state never really had the right to make marriages. All it's ever did have was the right to give privileges to people who were married. And there's no reason why it shouldn't give those privileges to people who have three wives or married to someone of the same sex or whatever. But that doesn't make those relations into marriages. 
Now, is that, is I'm, that okay? I, that's it's great. Um, yeah. uh, and again, I'm not looking for agreement. I'm looking for, yeah. for what you have to say. Um, but I'm going to throw one more question in here that's not written, and, and um, it's, mm. it comes from Mariah. Faithfulness in marriage and sexual desire. Mm. Yes. Um, obviously, uh, sexual desire is in itself exclusive. You want that person and you don't want others to want her, and you don't want her to want others. I think that's, that lies in the nature of it. It doesn't follow that there aren't all kinds of arrangements whereby people swap and, and so on, but that lies in the nature of sexual desire um, and is there regardless of whether the desire leads to love or, or marriage or anything like that. Uh, and one of the difficulties of our age is of course that people express their sexual desires without getting the protection of marriage or any kind of permanent relation, so that jealousy comes very quickly in the wake of those desires, and a lot of the disruption, especially uh, in, in the welfare culture, uh, is uh, stems from this. True. Um, I'd love to comment, but I'm going to keep rolling. Okay, okay. now I'm to the part about. Uh, um, there's another plane. Yeah. Okay, let's have the question then. What do you mean when you say that human appearances are more important than reductionist scientific reality, cognitive dualism? Mm. Most of our ways of understanding the world, and each other in particular, uh, are based on the way things appear and the way people appear to behave. Uh, uh, I judge you by your face, your facial expressions, by your hands, your words, things which come into my consciousness immediately. A scientific theory of things is not so interested in appearances. It, of course, they are the evidence for the theory, but the theory is always trying to get behind appearances to the explanation. But the explanation in the case of ordinary human life is of no use to us. You know, um, if I had a complete anatomy of your of your face uh, and a complete map of the of the activity and the synapses of your brain, it would not help me to interpret your smile. Uh, on the contrary, it would detract me from it, uh, distract me from it. Uh, and so I think we. Um, Growing out of this observation is my thought that we really do systematically understand the world in two incommensurable ways. As the, the human world, the world as it appears to us, which we know how to relate to uh, and in which we form relations of I to you, etc. And the scientific world, the world which as it's presented to scientific theory, which is of no use to us in our day-to-day -day lives. Perfect. All right, I'm going to skip this next one too, which was the one about dualism, asking right. for help from yeah. Roger. I think you've, you've answered that. Yeah. That's, uh, right. uh, I just don't value that question as much as others, right. and I'm trying to get through it. Now, here's one I'm very interested in because I'm going to tell you, I've used these two phrases about four or five times right. this week alone, okay, yeah. in, in getting back to people in the United States. Please explain a phrase that you're making well known, the wet's culture of repudiation, and mm -hmm. also comment on a culture of affirmation. Yeah, 
Okay. Um, it has it has struck me for a long time uh, that much of the of the difficulties that we've encountered in recent decades in coming to agreement about things in um, in no, let me start again. If we look around at all the political conflicts uh, um, that animate, especially West, um, especially American politics, but also European politics too, we find that there is a vociferous group of people who are determining what the issues are, always, uh, and the issues tend to be. Uh, uh, let me say it again. It's okay. Do it, do it as many times. It doesn't matter. Yeah. This is okay. really important. There are it's, lots, a, it's a great buzz yeah, phrase. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of issues that occur in in social debates and political questions in throughout the West, which are initiated by vociferous minorities who want an answer to a question. The question is always, um, why should we keep this institution? Why should we keep monogamous marriage? Um, um, why should we keep uh, customs which seem to distinguish men from women? Uh, isn't there in our inherited order kinds of discrimination that we wouldn't accept, etc.? These questions, they, they gather momentum in the culture and become absolutely fundamental to the, how people define themselves. They start defining themselves as against this or that aspect of our inherited culture. And this is very appealing, especially to young people, for whom being against what they've inherited uh, is felt as a kind of liberation. So there has grown what I call a culture of repudiation around this practice, the habit of repudiating all customs and institutions, forms of life and distinctions especially, on which our civilization has been built. Uh, and it's a very negative thing because nothing much is put in the place of what is being repudiated, but the repudiation takes, um, takes on a, a kind of charm of its own because it, 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 you, know, you, you can make very clear what you're against um, without having the need to define what you're for. In the place of that, I would like to put a culture of affirmation I would like to say, look, this is all too hasty. You haven't looked into what, what it is that we have and the benefits that have, that have flown from it. Before repudiating something, shouldn't you put some time into understanding it? That's what my role as an educator is, is to uh, put that across and make people obey it. Wonderful. And that's the first part of Doug Monroe's conversation with Sir Roger Scruton, writer, composer, and author of more than 50 books and dozens of other works. In today's episode, we heard about philosophy, argument, knowledge, and culture, and heard Sir Roger's thoughts on German Enlightenment thinker Immanuel Kant. Coming up in episode two, more on Kant, plus a discussion of two philosophers who ignited trouble with their beliefs and writings. We'll also delve into personhood, Christianity, freedom, and the sacred. Thanks for joining us on Building Worldviews.
Please subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts and visit us at praxiscircle.com.